This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hey, welcome back to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And we are here live with you on Thursday morning on Sirius XM 132. We're also on demand on the Sirius XM app. I also want to remind you that you can always give us a ring at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or you can shoot us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132 and at Wharton Social. Uh, welcome back to the show, Sandy. It's good to be here. It's such it's such a nice time to be here. It's, it's our a, last day in the office. It's a great week. Yeah, working at a university, we have a strong we have strong seasonal patterns. Yes, and so the students are have wrapped up finals. It's a very quiet campus. We're able to, you know, put our heads down and get to work, do our strategic planning for 2019. It's got a nice energy about it this week. And that's a great segue to our next guest. You know why? Because not everyone has the luxury of, of things that we have right now. Mm-hmm. You know, not just sort of socioeconomically, but we have great benefits. We get this time off, and it's paid, mm-hmm. and we, you know, there's a lot of comfort with that. Oh. So we are going Absolutely. to move to Palak Shah, who's the founding director of NDWA Labs and the social innovations director at the National Domestic Workers Alliance, which is what NDWA, I believe, stands for. For our listeners, welcome to the show, Palak. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, I know that you might be in a really fun location, so thanks for taking the time to join us. Always a pleasure to talk about the great work of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Yes, absolutely. And like I said, you know, we are really fortunate here at the University of Pennsylvania to have to have what we have. But I, I do want um, to just, you know, n- note that we, we recognize where we are. So um, let's talk a little bit first about you. You know, what is, you know, your background and how did you get to NDWA Labs? Well, in 2013, um, I was approached by the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and, and we'll talk more about them, I guess, you know, later as we continue the conversation, but they advocate for the domestic workers of this country, the nannies, the cleaners, the caregivers, the people who work in our homes. And what they were observing was um, the kind of entrance um, and um, the intersection of technology companies, Silicon Valley, the way tech was changing all of our lives, you know, especially with mobile um, how all of that and all that change was intersecting with domestic work, which has historically been a very informal and invisible labor market. Right. And so the workers basically wanted us to develop both a strategy and an intervention, and that's kind of where I come into the picture um, because I have a background that, you know, I've, I'm a trained community organizer, but I also have a traditional management consulting background, and I also worked for the governor of Massachusetts, and so I kind of came into the picture Um, bringing a lot of different skills and coming from a lot of different worlds as we try to figure out uh, what our social movement's response will be to all of this technological change. So, yeah, let's go ahead and dive in. Tell us more about the history of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Well, the National Domestic Workers Alliance is the national voice uh, for the nation's 2.5 million or so domestic workers. And these are mostly women. Um, They're disproportionately women of color and immigrants. And they work in the shadows of our economy, right? In many ways, I think about the work that they do, caring for our children, uh, cleaning our homes, taking care of our grandparents or our parents um, or our relatives with disabilities. They are, um, in many ways, what I consider to be the scaffolding underneath the formal economy. If they don't go to work, other people are not going to work. 
Um, and, you know, for generations, this work has been um, invisible, it's been informal, it's been off the books and under the table. Um, and from the perspective of the social movement, right, where we're seeking to organize the workforce, um, it's a very difficult work for, workforce to find. You don't know which homes are workplaces. Um, the workers themselves are vulnerable. Uh, there's no HR department to call, right? There's no, there's, there's just no list of them anywhere. There's no registry. Um, and the history of this workforce, which a lot of people are surprised to learn, is that they don't have all the same worker protections that all of us take for granted in the economy. Um, during the New Deal, when the foundational labor laws of this country were passed, where we established the right to a minimum wage and we established overtime protections and we established, um, you know, in other pieces of legislation, the right to unionize, all of those laws, when we passed them in the 1930s, explicitly excluded two groups of workers. And those were the farm workers of this country and the domestic workers of this country. Now, a lot of people ask, well, why was that? And I was about to ask yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I was like... Um, I'm so glad you did. Um, well, it's actually kind of really a, a tragic legacy um, of slavery and the history of racism in this country. And the, the reason I say that is when we were actually, uh, when Congress was looking to actually create the political, you know, votes that were essentially needed to pass all of these laws, Southern politicians basically would not endorse all of these new laws um, unless essentially if African-Americans were excluded. And at the time, domestic work and agricultural work were really the professions that African-Americans occupied. Right. Yeah. It's a really, it's it's a really important reminder because I, you know, for some reason I did not immediately make that link and I feel a little shameful for, for not doing that. But of course that's, you know, part of our history. It's part of our history, and the question really is, what do we want to do about that going forward, right? And so the Domestic Workers Alliance is, is the national voice for this workforce, um, and our, you know, we're basically focused on, on a few things, right, which is to improve the, the, the quality, the, respe- the quality of the jobs, the respect and dignity that's afforded uh, to this workforce. That's a very complicated workforce to deal with, and we can kind of get into that. But um, the other thing that um, folks don't really immediately realize either is that home care is one of the fastest-growing occupations in the country, right? So there's an area of economic – this is a growth – a job growth category um, in the country. Um, And we're projected to add over a million new jobs in the U.S. economy over the next decade um, in the home care sector, uh, which is really, you know, taking care of uh, people who are aging and those with disabilities in the home. Yep. And, and, and let's, yeah. let's sort of um, talk about that a little bit, because I think you talked about the challenges of sort of, um, you know, defining and sort of capturing the size of this workforce. How do you define it? Sort of where are the edges of folks who are defined as um, domestic workers versus, you know, do stay at home parents qualify? Is this including, um, you know, part-time work. Just tell us a little bit about, like, who, who counts as you're quantifying the size of this market. Yeah, well, it's mostly, I mean, it's never been a formally defined industry. So, I mean, I can tell you how we think about it. Mm-hmm. And I think it, will ch- it continues to change as portions of this industry become more formalized given the growth and demand for these services. Um, but generally, we think about it as people who are working in the privacy of other people's homes. So if, you know, a nanny who comes to your home and takes care of children, 
uh, you know, people who are either full-time housekeepers but also occasional cleaners, uh, people who might come every once, every week or every other week to, to tidy up a home. Um, it could be people who are working one-time jobs or it could be people who are recurring jobs. But generally the thing that is unifying this workforce is the fact that they work in the privacy of other people's homes. Okay. That's a helpful definition. Um, and, and to underscore what you were saying about the growth, Nick and I were having a conversation yesterday with a, um, you know, a, an advisor of ours talking about um, elder care and aging and the, um, the, just the huge economic impact um, in many dimensions, one of which being care um, and really thinking about that. So, you know, tell us what trends you are seeing in terms of uh, why this is important for us to consider and sort of get right as a nation. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the first is um, anybody who works in this country should be afforded the same rights, dignity, and respect. And what we have right now is a system that's been legalized that, that doesn't do that. So I would say there's a kind of moral and kind of fairness imperative underneath all of, of the work that we're doing to say domestic work is just like any other work in the economy and it deserves to be respected as such. So that, that's kind of, I would say, the primary um, way that we look at it. But it is true that this workforce um, and care jobs are among the fastest growing in the country. Um, and they're generally poverty jobs. And so as we think about the economic strength of the nation and we think about how we want um, how we want people to age, how we want people to work, all of these questions begin to centralize um, in the domestic workforce. And, and then when you start thinking about, well, why is this workforce in the condition that it's in, and what can we do to actually improve this to make you know, care jobs good jobs, to make care jobs the jobs of the 21st century? These are jobs that can't be outsourced. They can't be automated quite yet. You know, I've been talking to uh, different labs around the country, and one of them in California has been working on uh, getting a robot to fold a towel for 11 years, right? So <laughs> I think <laughs> as, you know, the baby boomers aging is going to get here a lot faster than, than we can actually replace uh, the domestic work labor force. That's yeah. so funny because in <laughs> just yesterday we were talking about all the things that are going to be automated and how easy it is to replace jobs. And we were talking about very high-tech ones, but it's funny that something like folding a towel is... Uh, <laughs> I wasn't, we weren't a thinking about that. that hasn't that. been covered by robots yet. That's right. And I'm also, you know, I'm reminded of my great-grandmother who was a housekeeper. I don't know for sure if she was, I, I don't know if she was employed through a service or if she was on her own mm -hmm. um, and would have sort of qualified in this in this regard. But, you know, I, I am struck that those folks in those, you know, jobs probably aren't able to save for retirement. And so they're doing this until they probably physically can no longer do that. Mm -hmm. Um and so tell us a little bit more about why why NDWA is trying to innovate. What you, you might have mentioned tech at the beginning. Like what's the impetus around this? Yeah. Well there's a lot that's changing, back to your question about the trends, right? There's a lot that's changing. The first is that technology is taking over all of our lives, right? And this is not just the business tech sector, I'm just saying mobile and computers and screens and it's affecting the way that domestic workers are you know, talking to their employers and the expectations around communication. And technology is changing just the way that this industry functions. Then we've got the trend of Silicon Valley and technology companies entering into our markets um, and discovering 
um, large informal markets and places where uh, they hypothesize an intervention um, could improve the, the functioning of the market. And then there's just the sheer demographics of what's changing, right? So the fact that 10,000 people are turning 65 a day, that the overwhelming preference of the baby boomers is to age in place at home, as you probably learned in your conversation around the elder care discussion. And so all of that is basically leading to a tremendous growth for this in, uh, for demand uh, for, for this industry and, and for people who care and clean. And at the same time, we've got a real problem around the quality of these jobs. As I said before, there's a lot of exclusions for this workforce. There are a lot of people are paid under the table. Immigration complicates um, the power dynamic and, and the conditions under which people are working. And so part of, and the thing that's really challenging about this industry, which is different than other industries, other efforts where we've had, you know, in history, like auto workers or other kind, you know, factory workers, where we've had basically the formation of unions as a mechanism to improve the, the quality of jobs in the industry. That strategy, um, the exact strategy of forming a union doesn't really work in this industry in the same way, and that's because there's no... There's well, tech is not our Where's... friend today. I think Mercury's in retrograde. <laughs> Something. But no, um, let's sort of try to, to, to pick up. I'm very curious. I was uh, very eager to hear why the formalization wasn't possible. Because when she talked about, you know, working in the privacy of other people's homes as their requirement, I was thinking, you know, why aren't why aren't the best practices then from like plumbing? And, you know, other, um, oh. you know, industries like that sort of shaping this field where, you know, there's a, a similarity in role that's being played, but it's being done a lot on an individual basis or contractor, you know, things like this. Um, so I'm curious why that doesn't happen. What what do you think might be under, I don't, underpinning that? It's a good question. I mean, when I, when I think about, you know, care or, you know, housekeeping mm -hmm. and things like that, you know, there at least in my mind, and it's probably an ignorant view, like it does feel more uh, potentially self-employed kind uh -huh. of self-directed versus plumbing which often there's a lack of like a formal certification or something yeah but contractors like you said mm -hmm. you know there's you know i don't know what there's there is a more informal economy right, like a handyman versus yeah. a, a plumber or something like this so perhaps that that's um part of the way that those groups formalize is if if you you know if you get your um you know plumber's license then you're then you're sort of in a system um whereas you know we were talking about how difficult it is to sort of identify and connect these folks yeah um, maybe that's a little bit what's going on do we have you back on the line to answer this big question we do i apologize no worries we'll see if our we, we've now been forced to sort of show our intellect so we'll see if we were right <laughs> i'm sorry i missed it so tell um, us why why it is so hard question i think you were asking me is why do we need an innovation lab right and i think part of the reason we need that is because it's a really difficult set of problems to solve, right? It's hard to find the workers. It's hard. The traditional strategies around organizing or even collective bargaining don't really apply in the same way. Um, there's also then the kind of intimacy and informality of the relationship. That, you know, if you've ever hired a domestic worker to work for you, there's uh, it's just it's different than hiring a plumber, as you were mentioning, or it's different than hiring, you know. A driver to well, you talked about some very intimate roles, you know, like elder care or a nanny. I mean, these are, to me, maybe this is uh, belittling. I'm not trying to belittle plumbing, but there's there's such a 
um, emotional and, and intimate sort of connection with the roles of those individuals. Yes, that's a huge part of domestic work, the emotional labor that's involved, right, in, in caring um, for the most precious elements of our lives, our homes, our children, uh, our parents. And so part of the reason that we formed the labs was um, while we were making great progress on legislative strategies, we've been very successful in passing domestic worker bills of rights around the country, while we've been successful in organizing the workforce, although we have you know, a long way to go in terms of reaching the 2.5 million in the country, we started to get the sense, especially with the technology element um, disrupting a lot of the way that the market functions, uh, we started to get a sense that we needed to, to experiment with a whole new set of strategies, things that didn't necessarily, weren't, that weren't endemic to, to social movements. And the lab was basically the container, the home for all of that. And I, you know, th the reason I established the lab was so that we could basically create a sandbox experiment with all new, new kinds of strategies. And that includes partnering with the private sector. It includes building technology products for domestic workers, by domestic workers. And um, it includes really engaging nationally around this whole conversation on the future of work. And in many ways, you can think about the domestic workers of this country as some of the original gig workers in the country, right? Mm -hmm. Working right. without contracts and working without, you know, uh, the OGs of the gig economy. <laughs> that that was, I guess, it didn't land. The OGs <laughs> of the gig economy. I didn't hear what you said. It's not that it didn't land. I chuckled. <laughs> So, but yeah, they, I mean, what you were saying is that they are, you know, this gig economy that we talk about now, a lot of freelancers, I mean, they were, you know, domestic workers were very much sort of like this ad hoc informal mm -hmm. economy that we are celebrating today, but has been underground historically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, I think there is a piece of it that people are celebrating, which is the flexibility. I think what is a challenge that we, I think, really should put our best minds to solving is the stability component to it. Right. So how do you balance flexibility and stability in ways, especially at the bottom of the economy where, you know, missing one day of work like a domestic worker could basically mean the difference between being able to pay your rent or not, right? And, yeah. and a series of then catastrophic consequences. So tell us, you know, if you had, you know, three wishes, you know, for the outcomes of unifying and sort of connecting and mobilizing this you know, group of, of professionals, what do you, what would you hope comes out of it? I mean, you, you spoke sort of at the highest level of, you know, respect and fairness, but, you know, what would the three sort of material things that you would hope came out of this be? Well, I mean, I think it really boils down to one thing, right? Which oh. is care, <laughs> jobs. care jobs are good jobs. They're the kinds of jobs that you can raise your family on, that you can be proud of, that you can you know, do better one generation from, you know, from one generation to the next. That's not the reality um, of this industry today. But it is an industry that is so vitally important to all segments of our economy. And I think our goal is to move us in that direction. Um, and that will, I think, um, require government. It will require the private sector to act. It will require households to act. It's going to take, it's a pretty large industry with very entrenched challenges. Um, and I think at times it's going to be, you know, uh, one, one strategy or one arena will, will kind of kick off a, a, a chain of events, right? So in some ways our legislative strategy really brought domestic work 
um, out of the shadows and into, you know, kind of more mainstream conversation and allowed for us to visibilize what has been so invisible for generations. Um, and I think the same is happening now with, with, you know, the lab's flagship product, which is called Aaliyah. We've launched our, the first benefits, the first portable benefits platform in the country, and our first users are the house cleaners of this country. Um, and that is, you know, really, it's a non-government solution. It's, it's a market-based solution. It's a technology product that we've built in-house. Um, and, you know, I, I imagine that this will inform future policy around gig work and, and people who are working in non-traditional jobs who don't have a nine-to-five, who don't, you know, uh, have the kinds of jobs I assume that, that all of us have. Um, but uh, in the current moment, what we've decided to do is launch a product that really um, uh, begins um, in a market-based way. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, and we're talking with Palak Shah, the founding director of NDWA Labs, which stands for National Domestic Workers Alliance, and she's also the social innovations director for NDWA. So, Palak, you just talked about Aaliyah, this new tech platform that's also offering benefits uh, to domestic workers. Tell us more about that. Well, we're really proud of the product. Um, We went nationwide last week, although we've been in beta for a year, and it's the first portable benefits platform, and what I mean by that is we're enabling access to benefits in a way that no one else has done. So the benefits that the, the whole system that we've created is is that it's portable. Um, that if you think about the use case of a domestic worker who's a house cleaner, uh, the benefits stay with her instead of being attached attached to the job. It allows for multi contributors, right? So if she has ten or fifteen customers who, you know, whose home she cleans once or twice a week or once or twice a month, they can each pay into this system their share, right? So it's prorated, which is really only, uh, we don't really have systems like this right now because generally the benefit systems that we have in the country are designed for people who work in one job, um, generally nine to five type of 40 hours a week, a full-time type position. But also if I leave that job, I, I lose my benefits. That's right. Yeah. So what we've done is design a system where it's the worker's Aaliyah account and her clients, they may change over the years. They're contributing to her benefits account. And then she basically gets to apply those uh, credits that she accrues on the Aaliyah platform towards you know, paid time off, which is really the number one thing the house cleaners of this country have said again and again and again that they need. Right now, when cleaners don't show up for work, they generally don't get paid. So it's right? not health insurance or something like that. It's PTO. It's PTO to start. We'd love to be able to offer health insurance. I think the, the greatest challenge for us is figuring out how to intersect with the exchanges. And we've also, um, the premiums tend to be a little bit high for this population. Interesting. But I what, what I think is really cool um, is that you can sort of see a future state. Like if we could mm-hmm. figure out these challenges, that people who have traditionally been in the informal economy may have access to a world that, you know, they've never had before. And not only that, but I I feel like you're innovating to provide an opportunity for all of us, really. Mm -hmm. You know, again, like your benefits are tied to your job and a lot of people stay in jobs because they don't want to lose those benefits um, and the security of that. But, Mm -hmm. you know, there might be an opportunity where it's based on what we're able to pay into. You know, we, we might have an income, but hey, I'm a freelancer and I don't have to go without health insurance. Yeah. And, and, and we can't say enough about the 
uh, value both health and economically of right. preventative care and things like this. So there's a huge trickle-down effect if an individual is seeing their primary care physician annually versus um, letting a disease go unchecked right. and then having so to sort of treat. One of our treat. users on the ALEA platform told us that she was behind on her annual medical checkups, right, because she never felt like she could take the time off of work and lose pay. And doctors are open Nine to five. And, exactly. You know, that's so when a lot of people want this saying, work done. Exactly. And so what she's saying to us now is that she, because she knows she will have, you know, she will not lose the income for that, you know, for that half day or day that she takes off to go do that, she will take the time to actually do it. Right. And as you know, and as all, you know, all the people who work in health prevention know that that obviously has great effects on, mm-hmm. on the economy. But to the larger point that you both are talking about, yeah, I think the pain point that Aaliyah is solving is that work is generally changing um, and that the way that our benefit structure is almost 100 years old. Mm-hmm. And so as we think about the future of work and the fact that more people in the economy are cobbling together income from different places, sometimes by choice, but at least in our part of the economy, it's usually by necessity, um, and um, that our system has just really not been designed for that type of you know, multiple employment or gig scenario. And so what we believe about Aaliyah is obviously we're starting with our workforce. We know that best. Um, we are a lab that, that, you know, was created to serve the domestic workers of this country, mostly because in some ways the market's not really um, come in with all the solutions that we really need. And so while the labs is filling that gap, there's obviously – I think, a tremendous amount of applicability broader than domestic work for, for the ALEA platform and the way that we're reimagining and redesigning the way benefits work in this country. And, Pollock, you mentioned that uh, you, you're pretty new in terms of the official rollout, but you've been in beta for about a year. Um, can you tell us about the response from the beta users and any success stories um, sort of along the lines of what you shared previously? Yeah. I mean, the response has been really overwhelming. I think, you know, the cleaners of this country, and we, of course, designed this whole product together with domestic workers. We are a lab by the workers for the workers, right? And so what we are, we have years of accumulated wisdom around the challenges, the nuances um, that the workforce faces, and we built a product that is responding to that, right? And so that some of that has to do with my, you know, very early design choices that we made to build the, to build the platform in English and Spanish, um, where the client can use the platform in English, but the worker can use the platform in Spanish. Um, the fact, you know, the response from the cleaners has been they feel appreciated like a person, that there is a, a way that respect and dignity is manifesting itself in the actions that both their clients are taking and also in the fact that such a product exists in a way that starts to change norms around this work, right? I mean. The historical view of this work is, has really, you know, it's, it's not been seen as real work. It's not been seen as a real job in the way that you go to a factory. And I think part of what we're trying to do by introducing the ALEA platform is provide material benefits like paid time off and other forms of insurance to the workforce, but also change the norm um, and give the work the, the, the respect that it, that it deserves. We have heard uh, so many stories from workers in the beta around the way that this is changing our lives. We heard a story from somebody who took her first paid day off in 10 years um, for being sick. She would just work through the pain or work through being sick. Wow. As I, yeah, I mean, it's just the stories that you hear about what people are doing in these invisible parts of the economy to survive. I think what we are really proud about is um, 
that the that this is providing some level of a social safety net um, in places where the formal social safety net is not being used or available. On the client side, what we have heard um, is people are just so happy. They've, they've kind of seen these problems, right? They know that when their workers mm-hmm. doesn't show up, they're getting paid, but they haven't really had a mechanism or something really easy, you know? I mean, you you could come, you could try to replicate this whole system on your own, and it would just be, you know, lots and lots of time. Um, this was, you know, three easy steps: register, you know, find your cleaner, or invite your cleaner, and you know, make a recurring contribution to her account, and then you're done. And what the clients have said to us is that the ease of that um, really is just um, a tremendous. It just is a no-brainer. Well, and and Pug, that brings up such an interesting point for me. I was thinking, how do you reach the cleaners mm-hmm. or the caregivers to sign up for the platform? They're I mean, to be fair, I think they're probably not listening to dollars and change, but the employers slash the clients might be. And so how, you know, how are you getting out the word? Well, there will be traditional marketing strategies that we'll continue to use. I think the profile of our social movement makes channel partners um, really exciting. But also the thing that's really um, an advantage for us in this industry is that domestic work is a referral based. Mm. And what we've learned in the beta is that, you know, if you hire a cleaner, usually the way that a person has found that house cleaner is by asking their friends or family. And so what we learned in the beta, which was really exciting, is that, one, clients were super excited to, you know, we've set the contribution at $5 a cleaning right now into the benefits fund. So it's it's not a huge lift, and generally clients are pretty happy to do it. Um, But what we've also learned is that when a client kicks off, the entire enrollment process, um, that the cleaner is more successful in the subsequent client signing on because someone's already started the process and brought it to the cleaner. Um, And so what I think that means for our marketing strategy going forward is that we'll be really focusing on the clients um, because if we can get that first client on, we can kind of kick off the chain. Yeah, Um, and it's sort of the old strategy. Sometimes when we do our impact work, we say, like, "Let's, let's follow the money. You know, let's follow the payer. Um, because that creates sort of a pull of the process through the system. Uh, my last question for our listeners who do think, hey, you know, I'm one of these uh, employees or I'm an employer of individuals like this um, who might want to, to learn more. Where do they go and what do they do? It's very simple. You just go to org, and you'll have three easy steps. You... Find your invite your cleaner or find her if she's ready on the system. Enter your credit card and you're done. Well, wow. So my Aaliyah. M Y A L I A. Dot org. Dot org. O R G. Well, that's a great way to to wrap up this segment. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've been speaking with Palak Shah, who's the founding director of NDWA Labs and social innovations director of National Domestic Workers Alliance. A really important topic. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.